ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Australia's Bureau of Meteorology forecasts the weather pattern for this summer later than the rest of the world's forecasters, waiting until September to declare an El Nino. Today, Tuesday the 19th of September, the Bureau has just declared the onset of El Nino. We're now facing an El Nino, a hugely influential factor in the world's climate, which has just been declared for the first time in eight years. That increases our confidence that this pattern is going to last until the end of summer and that will mean that we are likely to see a continuation of the warm and dry conditions over the summer months in particular. Despite the forecast though, many Australians have experienced a very wet summer and farmers say business decisions made based on bomb information has cost them dearly. We're going to talk more about that. And we're going to head to Queensland to find out the future of its glittering sapphire fields. We don't need to pull huge amounts of sapphires out of the ground and all that does is just drop the price. You know, we've got the largest sapphire field in the world here and we need to sort of drip feed the market, not not pour it in there. I'm Sinead Mangan, back with you for another year of Australia Wide and today we're coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. There was no getting past the weather this summer. A lot of people's holidays got washed out over Christmas and the word unprecedented featured large in the headlines over the festive period. Today alone, parts of WA, like Parabadu, are looking at record temperatures and there it's a steamy 48 degrees today. And Queensland is bracing for the arrival of Cyclone Kearley. So it's fair to say the Bureau of Meteorology, or BOM as it's known, has its work cut out for it. But some farmers are disgruntled that the bombs forecasting for the current season was unreliable, particularly their long-term forecasts, which predicted hot, dry weather. Concerned what, what that hot, dry weather would mean for animal welfare and feed, many farmers then decided to sell livestock, and they say that decision has cost them a lot of money. To explain more, I'm joined by our reporter, Angus Verley, who's been looking into this situation. Now, Angus, tell me why the decision... I, I need you to explain the, the whole dynamics of this market. So why the decision to sell off sheep and cattle early? Why did that cost farmers so much? Yeah, so I'll take you back, Sinead. So what, what we had last year... Uh, we had, I, I suppose, two things going on in parts of of the eastern, or in in parts of the country. Certainly, it was getting dry, and then the other thing that was happening is that people were hearing from the bureau. Firstly, uh, an El Nino declaration and what what can come with that, and also uh, an ongoing forecast of of hotter and drier than average weather. So, people, livestock producers, were looking at those things and thinking, well. Uh, having experienced droughts in the past, let's let's get ahead of this one. Let's sell off our livestock. Uh, so lots of livestock went to market, more than typical. And then at the sale yards, the other thing is that people didn't feel, didn't have the confidence, didn't feel in the position to buy in livestock that they typically may have. Again, because of that pretty very strong expectation of of hot weather to come. So. What we had was that combination of lots of livestock going to market, not many people being prepared to buy. And then, of course, uh, that formula equates to a fall in prices. And, and Sinead, what a fall it was. I mean, you can look at some of these graphs that the analysts used to, to represent livestock markets, and they just dropped off a cliff within a matter of weeks and fell to, to lows that people 
well, people were saying they haven't seen in some instances for, for decades. To what extent did this forecast from the Bureau factor into that decision then for farmers to sell stock? What were they telling you? Yeah, so that's a, a tricky one to answer. And I think you'll get a, a full spectrum of responses on that because uh, certainly some people will say they, they don't base their long-term decisions off Bureau forecasts, but then there are others who specifically point to what they heard from the Bureau and say the Bureau made me think it was going to be uh, hotter and drier conditions to come, and hence that's why I sold, whereas with the benefit of hindsight, with the rain that we've had, and we can get into that more, but with the, with the benefit of hindsight, I absolutely wouldn't have sold. Like weather-wise, like we had extremely wet June, and then uh, and they were talking sort of El, El Nino sort of from then on, and um, and then, then it sort of came into a sort of a dry spring, so it looked like they were going to be pretty accurate, like um, we had to dry than every spring, I suppose. And so that, was, that put a lot of pressure on people decision making whether to, to hold or, or sell their sell their stock I suppose um, personally I had sort of you know we got to about November and things weren't looking real good and you know prices weren't uh, going real well and the, and the weather forecast wasn't brilliant looking ahead so probably made decision to sell steers and I probably would have kept if um, in hindsight knowing if, if the weather the way it's turned out like once we got to December, January, like we had, you know, quite good rains. That's farmer Scott Herman. So obviously, Angus, for for Scott, it did factor into his thinking about what he was going to do. So is it fair to say the Bureau got it wrong? In some ways it is, Sinead. It's a little bit of a tricky one to answer because the Bureau's El Nino declaration, uh, the conditions for El Nino were met. So uh, that wasn't erroneous for them to declare an El Nino. But we know that El Ninos mean different things and they... They're only correlated with hotter and drier than average weather and they don't guarantee it. So just uh, the mere fact of the Bureau saying we're having an El Nino or we're going to have an El Nino didn't mean it would be drier than average. But they did also indicate that it would be drier than average. So El Nino declaration, not, not technically incorrect, but creating that expectation out there that it would be drier than average, that turned out to be absolutely false because as we heard there from Scott Herman, the rains in Victoria, at least where I am, they arrived in December. We had an enormous rain Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and we've had several follow-up rains. And things are really wet and really lush here now. And uh, all of those livestock that were sold last year, there'd be plenty for them to eat if they were still around. So you spoke to Simon Quilty, who, you know, it's his job to look at global trends and what's going on with meat and livestock. What did he say about what the farmers had to say about the Bureau? Simon Quilty really came out quite strongly in defence of the Bureau. He said things did get dry, particularly in New South Wales, more so than in Victoria where I am. He said things got dry. Farmers have experienced droughts in the past and they've been caught out by them. And uh, they made the best decision at the time based on the available information. But then the retort to that as well is that uh, that Bureau's forecast was informing part of that decision. But certainly Simon Quilty couldn't have been more ardent in his defence of the Bureau. Let's hear from him. No, I don't think it is fair. For a myriad of reasons, I think they were doing the best job they could at the time. But in reality, the reasons being that the months of August, September, October, the average of those last year were the driest on record in 120 years. And the extreme temperatures particularly in New South Wales, was September was the hottest anomaly uh, month on record over 120 years as well. So 
farmers just had to stand in the paddock decide on what they were going to do. They didn't need to listen to the Bureau of Meteorology. That's Simon Quilty, who's a meat and livestock analyst at Global Agritrends. Now, he's quite emphatic, there's no doubt about it, Angus, but it's not just farmers that are critical of the Bureau. Many people do look to overseas forecasters when they're trying to gather information about the weather. But another source of weather information for people is the media, which we're part of. So what, what about that, that in terms of how much of a role do you think the media had to play in all of this? That's an excellent question, Sinead, and I'm really glad you brought it up because as I discussed with the Bureau, of course, they put out their forecast or they put out their El Nino declaration and they have no control over how third parties communicate it. So we had various media outlets... Uh, sort of taking that declaration, running with it. And we saw terms like uh, super El Nino and extreme and all of these sort of hyperbolic terms that the Bureau didn't use, but that were used in association with its El Nino declaration. And absolutely, a lot of farmers are pointing to that and saying, well, all of that just unnecessarily, as it turned out, fueled this negativity that developed in the livestock sector and contributed to people's decisions to sell livestock when they when they wish they hadn't. Angus, do you think, I mean, are there any farmers that you've spoken to um, that won't make it through this? You know, how pointed is it for people? Uh, look, I hate to generalise in, in agriculture, but really it's been a pretty good period for a lot of people. Uh, we've had pretty good seasonal conditions in a lot of areas. We've had really up until last year when these prices crashed, pretty good livestock prices, sheep, lambs and cattle. But I think in general, they were standing in pretty good stead. And what we have seen and we haven't actually touched on is since those rains have arrived that the Bureau didn't forecast, we've seen this enormous rebound in livestock prices. And you only have to look at those graphs that I mentioned before representing how those markets behave. And as much as they dropped off a cliff, they've now shot right back up. So for increases of 50, 60, 70% in in uh, lamb and cattle prices in really a matter of weeks. So as sharp as that, that recession in prices was, it just didn't hang around for long. And I guess as well, that contributes to that rueful feeling that people have of uh, if only they'd kept those livestock mm, for a few more weeks, yeah. then <laughs> there's the money to be made now. And Angus, the Bureau didn't come off too well in this whole thing. Will it, will it change how they do their long-term forecasts? Is there any kind of changes afoot? The Bureau did indicate that it might... Um, vary its messaging a little bit because it does have a strong focus on when it does declare an El Nino and it's probably picking up on on the media's interest in it. It knows that us in the media generally we're interested in when when the Bureau does declare an El Nino so it did sort of create quite a lot of uh, fanfare around its El Nino declaration but other forecasts when we talk about uh, rainfall being above average perhaps don't aren't met with the same level of interest. So I think the Bureau might look to moderate its messaging on both sides of the coin a little bit there so it uh, isn't caught out like it perhaps has been in this case. It's definitely a complex web of how that information flows through. Angus Farrelly, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. ABC Australia Wide. Sticking with the weather, there's been major flooding in the Northern Territory over the weekend with the highway linking Catherine in the NT and Cullinar in WA now closed. 
Floodwaters have gone through the Vic River Roadhouse and the petrol station about 300 k's from the WA border and yesterday a bunch of truckies were evacuated from there. One of them was WA truckie Max Henderson who spoke to Matt Brown a short time ago. I've seen your video Max of getting flown out, getting evacuated and you can you can yeah. see the trucks parked up on the highway. How are you feeling about the trucks? Oh, yeah, mate. How do you, how do you reckon that you've got $480,000 worth of truck there plus your trailers and freight? Um, it's pretty pretty daunting, mate. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's replaceable, sort of. We aren't. And from the time we moved from the roadhouse, which was a mad scramble on Saturday morning because the water had come around the back of us and then started flowing through the the parking bay where we were parked. So we we got it up there and um, pretty quick. And that, that was the highest ground we could um, scatter to. Uh, and from there, it's just been a, a wait and stay. But since the roadhouse shut down, we lost all amenities, uh, toilets, showers and Wi-Fi. So we really become isolated. A couple of the trucks had... Um, Sat phones, uh, but they were hit and miss. Um, sat phones are really a thing of the past now. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that that's sort of what happened. And, and from that time on, mate, once we lost all sort of uh, sanitary-type accommodation, it become a different issue. You know, by the time I got home, I hadn't showered for three days. And the other, other issue we had, Matt, there was a few crocs oh. starting to get around. There was one in the car park uh, when we were hooking up trailers to evacuate Saturday morning and then where we parked the trucks, you can see the trucks parked on the road to the left of them, there was a couple of small ones swimming around there. So as the water comes up, it gets a bit nervous uh, when you're climbing in and out of them at night. So that that's just another issue to deal with. Uh, you don't uh, get that in Bustleton. Mm-mm. No, you don't, mate. You do not. You get uh, you get a nice beach and a well. What I experienced this morning was far better than I've had for the last seven days. Trucky Max Henderson speaking to Matt Brown after he got home safely um, to his home in Bustleton and he was evacuated from the Vic River Roadhouse in the Northern Territory. Many parents would be delighted to be living in Queensland today because the kids are out of the house and back at school. But an unprecedented number of children in the state won't be returning to the classroom. Homeschool registrations have skyrocketed since the pandemic, with behavioural issues, bullying and class sizes pushing more families to ditch mainstream education. Lily Nuffling reports from Townsville. There's no such thing as a normal school day for Michael and Isabella Porter. This morning, it's soccer in the park, and they wouldn't have it any other way. They're like, what school do you go to? And I'm like, I'm homeschooled. And they're like, you're so lucky. Their mum, Lisa Godding, never set out to homeschool. My daughter and my son both attended school first and then we had a few little hiccups along the way with my son. And so halfway through prep I pulled him out and then I also pulled my daughter out halfway through year one and we just decided to have a six-month journey to see how we go with an alternative side of things. The experience just worked out so well that we haven't looked back since. That was nearly six years ago, but Lisa Godding's experience is becoming increasingly common. 
Homeschooling rates have skyrocketed in Australia since the onset of the pandemic, when restrictions gave many families a taste of learning at the kitchen table. We did see a big boom in line with COVID um, and in line with stay-at-home learning. I think a lot of parents seen that it could be enjoyable and that their children were a lot calmer. In Queensland, homeschool registrations have surged from about 3,400 in 2019 to more than 10,000 last year. That's an increase of almost 200%. Education researcher Dr Rebecca English from the Queensland University of Technology says a range of factors have contributed to the boom. I think parents are a little disaffected with the way that education is being run. A lot of them are unhappy with policies and procedures. Many of them are unhappy with the focus on standardised testing. There's a lot of overlap between homeschooling and the teacher crisis, the capacity to retain and attract quality teachers to our classrooms. There are issues around bullying. There are issues around neurodiversity and the capacity of classroom teachers to cope with the huge volume of neurodiverse kids that they have to interact with. Approaches to homeschooling vary from highly structured lesson plans to unschooling, where children lead their own learning. The majority of homeschoolers, including Lisa Godding and her kids, fit into a category Dr English describes as accidental homeschoolers. They're people who never set out to homeschool. It wasn't really on their agenda, probably wasn't at all on their agenda, but they found after having experiences in school for their child, maybe one school, maybe multiple schools, that they didn't feel like they have a choice. So these people feel like they're being driven into something that they didn't really choose. The decision to homeschool comes at a cost. Dr English says the burden falls disproportionately on mothers. So she has to give up her time to find resources, develop a program, write teaching materials if that's the way they want to go with their child. She's also got to do the report. But if she drops back, say, to part-time work or drops out of work altogether for a time, this can have a huge impact on the family's finances, both now and in the longer term, particularly around superannuation and the ability to save. For Lisa Godding, the benefits of homeschooling outweigh the challenges. Yes, it is a sacrifice. Like I've had to obviously sacrifice a career. However, I totally think it's worth it. Some children just need extra help and their parents are willing to do that for them. And so I think the numbers will continue to grow. A review of Queensland's Education Act is underway, which will consider a potential crackdown on homeschool requirements for the growing student cohort. That story from Townsville reporter Lily Nuffling. The central Queensland gem fields are a haven for grey nomads, tourists and young families trying to find their fortune. But only decades ago, there was a bit of a battle brewing there over the mounds of glittering sapphires. The era inspired a movie and helped shape what the region is today, though some big policy changes afoot have brought back memories of the tumultuous time, as Katrina Bevan reports. Heading out on his mining tenement, which also doubles as his front yard, Kingsley Fancourt fires up his machinery to search for gems. I've been associated with, with sapphires since 1966. I first came out here to Tomahawk Creek and I got a few stones and that sort of lit the fire and uh, came back quite a few times. That fire, that feeling of finding a gem and coming back for more is well known in central Queensland's gem fields. But in the 1970s, it led to some dramatic scenes, even inspiring the 1983 Australian movie Buddies. Everything they want, they're going to have to fight for. No, why not? That money was for the instalment. Stop it! 
have a go. Some locals say the movie took some Hollywood poetic license in depicting the time, while in other aspects they say it's spot on. So what really happened in the gem fields in the 1970s? To set the scene, interest in the gem fields grew through the 1960s, and by the 70s, machinery mining had arrived. It caused a clash with small-scale miners who wanted to protect their claims, and heated arguments ensued with the state government, tourism groups and the local council. In the midst of it all, Thai gemstone buyers also became interested, moving in and buying up big. Kingsley Fancourt was the local policeman in the gem fields between 1974 and 1976 and had a front row seat to the conflict. But a lot of it was who are, and you've got to remember the small miner, he was living on the bones of his backside in rough camps. So his greatest weapon at that point was his mouth. They stirred up a lot of resentment against the machine miners, and, and from their point of view, Rightly so, I guess, because they could see their their part of it getting ripped to pieces. One newspaper of the time declared the period the Gemfields Cold War between the pickaxe and the bulldozer. Another called it the wildest race for riches since the tumultuous gold rush. As things began to heat up, Mr Fancourt was forced to step in. There was a lot of resentment and there was a lot of talk about firearms and this, that and the other. And, and of course... At one point, the mining warden had his tyres shot out, or four of them. The guy that did it decamped. In order to quell all this nonsense, I cultivated an informant and found out about five concealable firearms. And then I got the warrants at the different addresses and uh, did a raid, got, got Emerald out to help me because I was the only man here. There was a Thompson submachine gun drop down a uh, earth toilet, the long drop, they call it. That was because of the raid I did and of course it just shut the field down like that nobody was talking firearms or shooting each other or blah 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 though he says the tale of a bulldozer being fended off by small-scale miners with rifles also depicted in the movie buddies is not quite what it seems their problem was they wanted to stop the dozer it was coming through to do a fire break out the back here they wanted to stop the dozer because this area is full of what they call ballrooms big holes under the ground and because a, a 70 ton machine driving over the top of them would shake things and collapse. So what they did is they walked the dozer through a different track away from all the holes and, and away he went. That was, in, that was a true story. Linda Drake, whose parents owned the local Anarchy pub at the time, also saw firsthand the effect the gem fever had. All of a sudden, there was the ability to be able to mine day and night, and that's what happened. But if you were going to go home at night, you had to be very careful because you had to make sure that the road that you came in on hadn't been dug up while you were at the party because that had, did actually happen. As things took off, Thai buyers also moved into the area in droves. And the price quadrupled overnight. And they set them up in a little caravan down behind the pub and there was, a line, there was a line of people waiting to sell. In the middle of it all, the Anarchy pub was also blown up by a disgruntled patron. Though it had little to do with the ongoing conflict, Linda says it highlights the heightened emotions of the time. Miner Murray Ungerer moved to the area in the 80s when most of the fight had died down. 
the machinery miners and the hand miners were starting to get along pretty good then because, you know, they were all given their own designated areas. He says that era helped shape what the Gemfields is today. Oh, I think it had a huge impact because, I mean, we don't need to pull huge amounts of sapphires out of the ground and all that does is just drop the price. You know, we've got the largest sapphire field in the world here and we need to sort of drip feed the market, not pour it in there. Discussions of the area's history have been brought to the forefront in the past two years, with the Queensland Government reviewing small-scale mining. Its latest proposal is to cap claim 10 years to 15 years, with any extension at the Resource Minister's discretion. Many miners oppose the changes and are fighting them, but the State Government says they would prevent people from living on claims without mining them and improve land rehabilitation. Regardless of the politics, it's a widely shared view that the local community is a special one. Here's Linda Drake again. And the Gemfields really attracts people who are a bit left of centre and don't necessarily fit into other communities, but the Gemfields is very accepting and, uh, and very loyal to each other when they have to be. Like They can fall out over the silliest things, but if there's an outside threat of any sort or or if there's something tragic happens the whole community just comes in and and supports each other really well. That's Gemfields resident Linda Drake speaking to our reporter Katrina Bevan in central Queensland. It's a place that I'd love to see. I'm Sinead Mangan. Great to be back with you on Australia Wide. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.